As we continue, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Ephesians 6, chapter 10, where I read for us earlier for our message this morning entitled, How to Stand. I shared with our Wednesday night crowd not too long ago one of my favorite roles that I was able to play in the church as a young man. You see, every so often, our small Baptist church would put on these productions. And, and listen, they weren't top dollar, high budget films, but they did portray some pretty important events in the life of the scriptures and Easter came around every year and every year they start typecasting. And you can imagine as a, a young man, as a teenager, you're perfectly fine when, when a, the woman in charge comes up to you and says, we'd like for you to play the role of Roman soldier. <clears throat> I mean, because after all, there was a deacon who got asked to be Judas, <laughs> and an annoying guy who got to be Peter. You'll take Roman soldier, I promise. It's not a bad one. It's, it's one of the better roles. It makes you feel good about yourself. That's how others see you until she comes out from the back. You know, we had those costume closets, and she's holding up a leather skirt. It looked at first like it might have been one of hers, and she just roughed up the edges at the bottom. She assured me it was handmade for this scene, for that purpose. One of the problems was, though, that the Roman soldier the year before, a great guy, but he was 5'8". And there's not a, sunlight, a lot of sunlight on these legs in the months leading up to April. And I wasn't sure me and Roman soldier were feeling too good about each other anymore. It's not that I'm that narrow-minded. Listen, I understand some of you come from... Scottish heritage, and you say the kilt is still a strong play, and I understand that, and I've been around the world, I've broken bread at tables with wonderful strong men who, uh, whose culture offered them a closed, I mean an open-bottomed garment. I realize there are men here today, we call them robes, but they're close. <laughs> but I couldn't do it. It felt like more than I could handle. They had to talk me into Roman soldier that year. The worst part was that that was not the most ill-fitting piece of costume they gave me. It was as if they had gone to Walmart and bought the child's plastic play set of armor and given it to me to strap, one on the chest that pinched and a helmet that pushed in on my temples and they dressed it up some to make it look better. Uh, they found a red broom, I guess, at some hardware store and thought that that really polished off the outfit. And it was like the costume ladies had good scissors and made it about halfway on the broom and then said, it looks good close enough. So I was sweeping the sky, coming down the aisle with Jesus in my short skirt, barely met the youth group's fingertip length qualifications. <laughs> if the costume isn't bad enough, Roman soldier doesn't get a lot of lines, so you've really got to just embrace that part if you want to make it your own. So you've got to decide how you're going to stand. You know, are you disinterested Roman soldier? Or uh, feel like I just came from the weight room Roman soldier? I thought maybe it should be like highway repairman soldier. You'll, you'll get that one on your way home. You don't want to look too lazy, Roman soldier, watching Jesus up there, hands on your hips. How do you stand in that ill-fitting costume? There's really not a good way. 
In our passage today, Paul comes to the end of a letter to the church at Ephesus. No doubt many other churches this letter circulates to. And there's kind of two things in view in our passage today. Paul is going to tell them both how to stand and what they are to wear. And you'll be glad to know today that Paul's not inviting you to the panoply, to the outfits, to the dressings of a Roman soldier, but he has in mind, he has in view certain things that you're supposed to put on in this life. If you're going to stand in the manner that God has made you to stand. So I want to suggest a few of the admonitions, the exhortations that Paul is making in this passage about how we're supposed to stand in a day like ours. Paul writes to a church that is young and the other churches who read this letter also would have been newly formed. They were minorities in their own community. They knew better than anyone what it was like to struggle against a world that doesn't seem to understand what God has called you to be. And so he writes, finally, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The first thing I want you to know this morning is that you need to stand as if you are in the midst of a spiritual struggle. Stand as if you are in a spiritual struggle. Now for some of you, that's news today. Some of you are not aware of this, that there is a struggle happening in this world that is beyond what our eyes can see. In fact, the very suggestion of spiritual things of this nature, of the powers of darkness that Paul writes about in Ephesians makes you uncomfortable. And a pastor who picks up a passage like this has to choose how to preach it in a way that's kind of palatable to everyone. It was C.S. Lewis who said in his introduction to the Screwtape Letters that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And because of those two poles, both the, the disbelief of spiritual devils in this world and the disproportionate interest in them, which many give, we get stuck trying to decide how do we speak about spiritual things, specifically evil, real evil present in this world in a way that does justice to the scriptures and is edifying to our experience. But I'm here today to tell you that the struggle of Spiritual things, not of flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness that are in this world are real and are alive and well today. And you need to stand as if you are in a spiritual struggle. The first step to losing the battle, the spiritual battle that is happening in this world is to pretend as if it does not exist. And many people in our culture are raising children, working their lives, spending time with their family, and their friends as if there is no spiritual struggle taking place in this world. It was 20 years ago that Andrew Del Banco, from a non-Christian, self-professed non-Christian perspective, wrote the book, 
the death of Satan, how Americans have lost the sense of evil. He opens up that book. His introduction begins with this sentence, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. He goes on to say the repertoire of evil has never been richer and yet never have our responses been so weak. Even a non-Christian writing a book that is basically a biography of how we've lost the language of evil in just a few hundred years is able to look at our culture and say, we no longer know what to do with the worst things in our midst. We explain them with our modern minds. Everything gets a scientific tag and nothing is spiritual because spiritual is not real. Only what I can prove and know and experience, that's all that's real. But that's a strange place to be as a believer in Jesus and as a Bible reader because replete throughout the New Testament are references to a spiritual war that wages in this creation from the first day, from the moment sin entered the world up until now. It's unavoidable. And more than that, we believe in a God we cannot see. So who are we to cling to our scientific method or our knowledge or wisdom or region? So with this kind of clouded view and the whims of our present age, or better yet, our Western culture, we've forgotten that there is more to our lived experience than what our senses perceive. And it was less of a reminder for a first century church than it might be today that there is a real spiritual struggle taking place in this world. It is around you and above you and over you. And if you ignore it, you are on your way to losing a battle. You see, in most places in the world, most of the world's population. This is not a difficult subject. It's really kind of a a common understanding. You go to most places in Africa or Asia or Latin America, and, and this is common sense in Christian life. It's funny, it takes a special kind of of arrogance to dismiss that amount of collective world wisdom and think that somehow in our day, in our time, and in this place, we've arrived at a, a lived experience, scientific minds. We're now fully discerning the world in a way that others just didn't yet know. We get it, what they used to have to ascribe to spiritual things, but I'm here this morning to show you that the scriptures say, and you need to stand as if there is a darkness that opposes the light that is in you. And it's a darkness that is above you and around you and beyond you, and you cannot fight it on your own. And some have heard of these spiritual things and believe them to be less real. That's the the temptation of our age is to simply believe that the things that aren't in front of us are somehow less than real, that this struggle against sin and evil in the world is less near to us. And there are many believers, many Christians who will muddle through this life, maybe even with the veil of success in their life, blinded by the fact that they're being discipled instead by the world, that the forces of this world are putting pressure on you, teaching you, forming you, shaping you every day. That they exist in in people and in systems and behind them. And that there are dark and evil things that are after you. The forces of this world are forming and shaping us. We are being discipled every day. The question is, by what? 
And if you ignore the battle our Lord wages against the spiritual forces of this world, you don't, as Paul says, wrestle with what you ought to wrestle with. That's the word he uses. One translation says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. That's because the the word he uses for fight isn't about fighting at a distance. It's not as if this enemy comes at us from a long way off, as if we can dismiss evil and all that comes with it as something that is far from us. No, this is the word for fighting that is most equivalent to wrestling, a a close-up, hand-to-hand confrontation, face-to-face. The struggle we have is close in this world. The enemy we deal with is near. Some of us need to be reminded today that we are to stand as if we are in a spiritual struggle. And yet there are others of us here in the room and listening by television or radio that have known for a long time that there's a battle going on. In fact, you come to passages like this and you're like, oh yes, finally the war begins. Enough of this turn the other cheek business. It's about time somebody told me to take up arms and get to work. And you heard about a war and you went running looking for a fight and you grabbed the first weapon you could find and the enemy handed it right to you as you waged war on this culture on its own terms using the same weapons the culture gives to you in the same places and in the same way. The problem is you've been fighting and struggling on the enemy's battlefield, on the enemy's terms. And you reach for the nearest tool and you received in your hand the things of this world, anger and resentment and revenge, sharp words and misguided truths, It was Paul who said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. We do not, Paul says, wage war war as the world does. Stand as if you are in a spiritual struggle, but stand also, stand in the strength that comes from God. That's what the first clause, first phrase of verse 10 says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Literally, uh, be clothed in his strength. Take the strength that is from him. God wants to give you his strength. And as Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, he's been explaining all along what is true of you and I in Christ. He spent several chapters proclaiming this newfound truth of, of what has happened to us as a result of Jesus's life and death and resurrection. He goes on to describe the Christian life as a walk, how you are to walk about in your Christian life until finally he comes to the end of this letter and he can't close it out until he tells you how to stand to remind you that you need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be continuously clothed, it says, with the strength of the Lord. And that strength is a strength that comes from God. When you put on the full armor, the tools that you will need to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
Therefore, he says in verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the day of evil and having done everything to stand firm. Over and over again, he reminds them they must stand firm, stand as if there's a spiritual struggle, stand as if they're full of God's strength and stand as if the tools that he gives are enough. And what are they? What are the tools, the equipment, the panoply of God that you are encouraged, exhorted to put on by Paul? It's not an ill-fitting Roman plastic armor or a broom on your head. And you've seen the images of the armor of God and you've probably heard a sermon that broke down every piece of armor and told you what it did for a Roman soldier and, and why its equivalent piece might do that for you. And, and those are great. I'm not going to focus as much on the Romans' tools. But I want you to hear the tools that Paul says you can't do without. The tools that he says will help you to stand in the strength of God. Stand firm then, he says, having been wrapped around, having girded yourself, having been belted with the truth. See, the first step in a war is to tweak the truth a little bit for one side, to change whether or not something is true. And there is a war on truth in our day. It's hard to find, it's hard to come by, and it seems it's difficult to speak. But Paul says you need to be wrapped around in what's true and sincere and genuine, that the words that you speak should be unequivocally committed to being true. And we think it's <clears throat> funny or maybe entertaining, or sometimes we assume it's more effective if we take our words and stretch them to their limits, or maybe even add a few, you know, butter up the situation to make it really sound like we want it to, and so easily we depart from the truth. We stretch our words beyond their meaning, and this first piece of what you're to put on in the armor of God reminds you that even exaggerated truth is untruth. And the people of God ought to be known as those who walk around and just seem to be so committed to saying only what's sincere and genuine and true that they seem to be wrapped up in it. Everything else is held on because they will not give in to the world's tools of deceit and dishonesty and trickery. It's a battle for what is true. If you know the truth, the lies of the enemy are worthless. Put on truth, he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Our world is full of corruption. It seems that none is left that is righteous. There are few who can stand up and speak to all, who can stand with sincerity, with feet that stand on ground that is righteous, full of justice. And it's so important in our day that your life be right according to God's view of what is just and good. Consider the Bible. All the people who attempted to take on the things of God only to fall because they didn't attend to their own righteousness. Even the greatest of warriors in the Bible mount up with God's strength and have great victories only to fall because they didn't keep their eyes fixed on the righteousness of God. Solomon was the wisest of men. He seemed to have enormous wealth, unending power, and yet he fell 
to the temptation to serve false gods. Samson was the strongest of all, killed a thousand men with the jawbone of a mule, toppled temples with his hands, yet as strong as he seemed, he couldn't avoid his own demise because he wasn't righteous enough. David was gifted with devotion. David was after God's own heart. Saul killed his thousands. David conquered his tens of thousands. And yet in all his strength and in all his devotion, his righteousness was his demise. Having loved the Lord, seeking to honor and glorify him, writing the Psalms of beautiful poetry and adoration, he eventually falls to the temptation of lust and adultery, untruth and then murder. Because his righteousness wasn't enough. And neither is yours. But here comes Paul to say in the first uh, chapters of this letter that there is a righteousness that comes from God. From the only one who ever lived a sinless life, belief in him, he brings you his righteousness that when yours falls short, you might be wrapped around with his truth and protected by his righteousness, the righteousness that only comes from God. Peace. Your feet ought to be fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. What an image in a world where peace seems so far off. Some are still working to return peace for peace by returning evil for evil. Some assume that peace is just less fighting. But this we can know that feet fitted with peace are not so you can take revenge quickly, but so you can run from it with haste. God says, if you want to be victorious in this life against the spiritual struggle that is real, you'll need peace. You'll also need faith, true conviction that's hard to find because fidelity is few and far between in our world. It requires commitment and patience and longevity. But this, Paul says, is protection and preservation from the enemy's aim, that the arrows that come flying at you will be fended off by faith, by a belief, by a deep conviction in who God is and what he's called you to do. And on top of all that, he adorns your head with the helmet of salvation. That blessed gift of redemption, deliverance that God gives to all of us. And the scary thing is that there are people in this world who seek only to wear the helmet. And that's an inappropriate way to go walking around. Spiritually and physically. They ignore the rest of the Christian life, the big, bountiful, beautiful gifts of God meant to protect us from this world, thinking that they can be escaped or saved from all that is here but salvation is among the gifts you will need, the gifts that God gives you. And you will need the word, the word of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Here with these, we're called to stand with word and salvation and faith and peace and righteousness and truth. We are called to stand with these things in a world that doesn't even know them anymore, in a struggle that it ignores, but is very much alive and real. We're called to be the body of Christ adorned in these things so that we'll be a testimony of what kind of kingdom is coming and what the king is like. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul says elsewhere. We work and in our lives we give a glimpse of the coming city of God. 
Because we are dressed, we are robed in things that point to a creator beyond. This morning, Paul comes to tell us to proclaim to a weary world that's tired from the struggle that we've been ignoring for far too long to say the power of God and the good gifts and the equipment that he has given you is still enough. He writes this letter, chained himself in prison. Paul understands how tough this life can be for those who believe. The chain goes from him over to a Roman soldier to whom he has been tied. No doubt the the inspiration for the text as he writes it here. And he looks at this, this man wearing this armor, this whole suit, and he says, God has given you a suit too. It's not like his. It's not made to do what his does, but it's made for salvation. It's got peace and righteousness and faith and the word of God in its hand and it cannot be defeated. And these tools are enough. And Paul writes to tell them it still works. It's still enough. And so if you've been living this life frustrated by the difficulties you face, the challenges that come, uh, unsure about the future or struggling in a relationship, or maybe you're just mad at the culture and the direction that it's going because it's not God's way, Paul comes to proclaim to us in this text this morning that God's tools are still enough and his power is still that big and it still works. This is still the armor you need. Don't put it down. Don't take their tools. Don't fight the war on the enemy's terms, but be clothed in the truth that binds creation together in the midst of the chaos from the very beginning. Take on the rightness that measures out all that has ever been known as just. It's the perfect peace of the prince himself, the very faith that brings assurance. It's the salvation of the only one who can truly save. It's the word of the same spirit that hovered over the waters and still speaks today by his spirit and by his word. These are your gifts. No one else in the world has the power of that armor to proclaim the message of the king and his kingdom. Wear it with joy. Walk in it with pride. Stand as if the struggle is real. It's still enough. There's still power in this armor. It's not the power of the armor the soldier tied to Paul wears, it's the power of the cross that the soldier looks up to and says, surely this was the Son of God. And when your righteousness wasn't enough, he calls you by faith to receive his righteousness and his peace and to know his truth and to hold his word with salvation on your head and to proclaim to the world that God's power is still good enough even when it doesn't seem to be. Be clothed in that power. Put on continuously the strength of his might. Come, receive from Christ the strongest armor there ever was. It's still enough. Let's pray. Father, you come giving us all that we need for the struggles of this world and all that we need to fit it for your kingdom. 
We pray that even today, you would teach us to live, making your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, even as we eagerly await the day when you will come and reign in fullness. We pray that our life, our lives individually and together would be a foretaste, a glimpse, a picture of what your kingdom will be like when the king at last shall come. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.